Welcome into Downtown the Podcast. What episode are we on, Carrie Haskell's? 44? This is 44. Oh, my word. From our Zone Radio studios in Bangor, Maine, Downtown originates every weekday from 4 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. You can download the new and improved WZON app and pick up the show anywhere you go on the planet. You can also get streaming audio at downtownwithrichkimball.com. And uh, because, I don't know, 44 is a good number, doubles and all that, uh, we've got uh, a triple play of talented guests this week. As we'll talk with Charlotte Wilder of Sports Illustrated, David Roth of Deadspin, and we get things underway with our recent conversation with a music legend who first hit the charts back in 1962. Along the way, only Aretha Franklin, among women, have scored more Billboard hits than Dionne Warwick. She's got a brand new album coming out soon called She's Back, and we had a chance to talk with Dion about the making of the album and her remarkable music career. Hi, Dion. How are you this morning? Couldn't be better. How are you? Wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us. Very excited. Uh, have the brand new album coming out. She's back. I, I assume you had a pretty good working relationship uh, with the producer, Damon Elliott. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I just better know him. <laughs> yeah, that's my baby. That's my son. And uh, he's just been doing such wonderful work um, with producing other artist over the years and I figured well it's time for us to get together again and do some wonderful work and that's exactly what we did he's uh he's really given me a, an incredible CD I think everyone's gonna love it well and it sounds like in terms of style it really harkens back to the great album that you co-produced uh, with Chip's moment soulful which uh, for me is one of your your best albums of all time oh well, thank you I'm glad you enjoyed that also yeah, a- I had an opportunity to um you know, dip my foot back into the R&B arena, and uh, songs are really sensational. Well, you, you come by it naturally, as does Damon. You come from a musical family. Uh, was it was the first time you ever sang in front of people? Was that at the New Hope Baptist Church? No, it was St. Luke's A.M.E. Church, ah. my grandfather's church. I was six years old, and uh, he kind of called me out of the 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 audience um, and the congregation to come up from the pulpit and sing the song that I lead um, in Sunday school. And I was terrified, but I did. And um, I must say, at the end of the song, I was very pleased. I got my first standing ovation. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had the family's background in music as well, but uh, I understand I caught the interview you did on CBS Sunday Morning the other day and you had a pretty impressive group of mentors from your godmother uh, to people like Marlena Dietrich, Frank Sinatra, and the great Lena Horne. That's true. Sammy Davis Jr., Dean Martin, Diane Carroll, Elvis Gerald, the list goes on and on and on. I feel so blessed to have been uh, put into their presence that they they felt obliged to embrace me and and, uh, treat me as their baby. We're talking with Dion Warwick here on Downtown. I also caught the documentary on Netflix about Sam Cooke, and I saw you in there talking about your very first tour was with Sam Cooke, and, uh, boy, a really interesting story you told about uh, what happened there and how Sam kind of stepped up uh, to help everybody out in a very tough and, and potentially dangerous situation. Mm-hmm. You know, the unfortunate thing is is that 
they were now going through almost exactly the same thing, mm. which is unbelievable. You know, we're talking 50 years ago that uh, segregation and discrimination was the order of the day, and now we're looking at it blatantly being still accosting us. It's, it's one of the most stupid things that ever, ever occurred in our lifetime. Uh, you've had so many great collaborations through the years, but everyone looks back at the work you did with Burt Bacharach and Hal David. What made that special in so many ways, it seemed, is that they were writing specifically for you and your unique voice. It's true. That's, that's exactly what it was. They were my producer-songwriters, and everything they wrote for me was tailor-made for me. Along the way, there were people who said, "Well, I mean, Dion is just part of that uh, part of that system. The producers are responsible for some of that success. Yes, they wrote great songs, but you you proved and really it started with the Soulful album when you broke away from them. But uh, into the seventies, your great work with Tom Bell that resulted in a number one song, and then uh, being produced and working with everybody from the Bee Gees." To Barry Manilow, uh, I, I think you proved along the way that the talent was in the singer because you've worked with so many people and had success with all of them. I sure did, and it was it was an opportunity for me also at this point in time. Once Backrack David decided they did not want to write together any longer, but it was to give me an opportunity to kind of spread my wings and see what else was out there, and it all kind of fell right back into my lap. Uh, you were honored at the Grammys and will be honored again in the month of May with a Lifetime Achievement Award. It, it has to be kind of strange to get a Lifetime Achievement Award. You're, you're far from being done. You've got the new <laughs> album. Do you tell them, look, uh, give that to me later on? I'll probably get be up for another one pretty soon. Well, that... <laughs> <laughs> so that, that Lifetime Achievements will continue and continue and continue. What is it that you still enjoy about performing, uh, whether it's in front of a live audience or, or working in the studio on a new album? I love what I'm doing. I love to sing. And I've got a, a God-given talent, and I must be using it in the way he wants me to use it. So as long as I have the ability to do that and bring some happiness to people's ears, that's what I'm going to do. Can you travel anywhere, not just in America, but anywhere in the world without people coming up to you and saying, oh, Dion, thank you so much. Uh, this song, that song, whatever song meant so much to me. No, fortunately, I cannot travel without people walking up to me and letting me know how much I mean to them musically. I find that not only refreshing, but very moving. You know, to know that you are part of people's lives that meant something to them. Uh, you're working on the new album uh, with people like Kenny Lattimore. You've got a couple of duets on there. Um, is it important for an artist, too, to stay in touch with what's happening currently in the music business and, and make that sound continue to be fresh and contemporary? Uh, well, that usually is up to the producer. My son happens to have a wonderful ear, and he also happens to know what mommy can sing. Well, that certainly helps right there. Thank you so much, Dion. We appreciate it. We wish you much success with the album. Thanks for making time for us. My pleasure. Thank you. Dion Warwick here on Downtown, the podcast. When we return after this quick word from Cross Insurance, Charlotte Wilder of Sports Illustrated 
It's Downtown, the podcast. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We're back (laughs) on Downtown, the podcast. Our next guest apparently has befriended just about every Muppet. Recently posted a, a photo cozying up to Oscar the Grouch. Charlotte Wilder uh, apparently will have some Muppets on the second season of The Wilder Project coming soon to SITV. We talked to Charlotte about, uh, well, Muppets, Gritty the Mascot, and much more on a recent visit to the program. Jealousy abounds in the downtown studios, though, after we saw your picture yesterday with one Oscar the Grouch. Oh, yeah. That was one of the best days of my life, actually. Uh, we had, so the Wilder Project, my show on SITV, um, comes back a week from today, so March 6th, uh, write it on your calendars, um, but all spring we're going to be having um, fun guests and in-the-field segments, and um, one of those involves uh, some of the Sesame Street crew, so I am just over the moon about that, um, and and it was really magical getting to uh, getting to spend some time with them yesterday in the studio. Well, I can see that, but I, I have to ask the question. It's 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 awkward, but uh, does does Gritty know about this? <laughs> Gritty, yeah, my 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 mascot love. Um, he doesn't, but. You know, I think I'm just waiting for him to notice me, and until he notices me, I'm gonna I'm gonna do whatever I'm gonna do with the other puppets. You know, he's a mascot. It's different. It's different. All right, I like that distinction. You know, that's I guess that's how we can make ourselves sleep at night, rationalize things. Sure, absolutely. Right, we do what we have to do. Right. Right. It's all about survival, taking care of yourself. Uh, you mentioned season two of the Wilder Project one week from today, and, and yes, uh, behind the scenes with the Sesame Street folks, fly fishing with Jeff Fisher. Tell us about that. Oh, man, it was really fun. I'm super excited for that segment to air. I think uh, I think people will find it pretty funny. Um, he is he was a lovely guy, and, you know, I, I was writing the story about him, and we figured we could probably get a segment out of it, too. Um, and he was totally game, so he, he taught me how to fly fish in the little pond outside outside his farm in Tennessee, which is a 900-square-foot cabin uh, that he got when he was coaching the Titans. So, you know, I, uh, I, I got to drive his golf cart. Um, it, was, it was a real experience. That sounds fantastic. And he seems to me like, like a real genuine guy. He is, you know. I mean, he, he was just really, uh, really open, and he loves helping people. And, um, you know, I does not deserve the, the bad rap he's gotten, um, in my opinion. But, you know, it was fun to be able to get to know him a little bit and sort of see his side of the story. We're talking to Charlotte Wilder here on Downtown. A new episode of the Most Valuable Podcast is out, a terrific one. As always, I have to ask, how are there people out there who don't know what the Wienermobile is? 
Well, my mom apparently doesn't know what it is, but uh, yeah, no, we uh, that was really fun. They picked us up the Wienermobile, the Oscar Mayer Wiener uh, car that is dressed up as a hot dog uh, or sort of a van. I don't really know, but uh, they took me and my co-host um, Jessica Smetana for a ride around Manhattan, and I have to tell you, I have never felt more famous. Than, than I did. You know, people are just stopping and taking pictures of the Wienermobile, and you can pretend it's because you're in it, but you know it's because it's the Wienermobile. Uh, so that was just, that was a real delight. You know, I, I'm, I'm looking at the video right now of you and Jessica in the Wienermobile, and I, I think back to a tweet, and I think it was a response to a tweet that you put out there about building, people trying to build their career and their presence, and that social media was not the way to do it, but you have used social media as a vehicle to progress your career at an incredibly rapid pace. Now, the talent's got to be there, and you've certainly got that, but uh, and you're doing some fun things now, and it's a career that you really created yourself through your ability to uh, be smart and do great work, but also to promote what you're doing out there. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, you know, yeah, I, I think that Whenever anyone says social media is not um, not something you should use or show your true personality on in, in, in journalism or, you know, mostly in sports media, I'm just like, whoa, what are you smoking? <laughs> you know, like, and I, I mean, I think it's different, right? You know, like I think that there are some people who are doing really serious reporting or want to cultivate more of a, um, you know, polished professional image, which I totally get. And you know, I realize that the only thing consistent about what I'm doing, you know, I'm, I'm bouncing across subject matter, even within sports, I'm kind of all over the place, that the only thing really consistent is my voice and who I am. And so I might as well lean into that. And um, it's been it's been so humbling that anyone cares or is here for it. So, uh, so yeah, I've, I've just sort of um, decided to take that, that route and use it as a way to express who I am and what I'm doing. And that way, hopefully when I do have, you know, it's bottom line is it's about the work, right? But like if no one reads it or watches it or listens to it, then kind of going into a vacuum. And I find using those channels to promote it is um, a really great way to get a company to let you continue to do it before (laughs) they fire you. Are you excited for the upcoming Red Sox season? Oh my God, Rich. I'm so psyched. I watched on Saturday, I turned on some of spring training and I was just sitting there listening to the sounds of baseball and the announcer's voices. And I was just so happy. I was so happy. Who's a bigger baseball fan, you or Aunt Char? Oh, definitely me. Definitely me. Aunt Char, my my alter ego, my 55-year-old thrice-divorced Connecticut (laughs) white wine drinking alter ego. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't, she only knows about sports when I tell her. So uh, I only know. No, I was going to say I only know about uh, one certain TV show when you tell me about it. So can you give me a capsule summary of where we are in The Bachelor right now? Oh no, dude! I haven't been watching. Can you what? That? Oh, yeah. I, I saw you tweet about it, and I thought you were back at it. No, I, I, I mean, I might keep watching now just because, you know, it's almost over, I think. But no, this uh, on Monday, I tuned in sort of halfway through an episode, and it was the first one I've seen all season. Can you believe it? I can't. What the heck is going on in your write, world? I used to write these recaps, and I have to tell you, it is so awesome not having to watch it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't doubt that I for a like- minute. 
Yeah, I feel like my IQ's risen since I stopped doing this. <laughs> I have no doubt about it. Now, we I joked with you when you first came on about the stand-up, but I mean, oh, this, yeah. this is something you, you want to do this at some point, right? I really do. I really do. I'm terrified. Uh, one of my guests on the Wilder Project this season is um, the stand-up comedian Rachel Feinstein, and she's so funny, and I think I'm going to... I think I'm going to run some of this by her and see if I stand a chance. Um, I did it for, I had a few beers at the bar the other weekend and uh, did some of it for my friends and they thought it was funny, but they'd also had a few beers. So like, I don't know if that's any indication. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But no, you know, I think that, I think it's one thing that I really, I want to do, but I'm really terrified. Like what I love about writing or about the podcast or about the TV show is that, you know, I have ultimately control over what goes out and my, I like when you're doing standup, it's, it's in the moment and people are either laughing or they're not. And I'm like, I think people not laughing would be the most devastating thing that I could experience, <laughs> which, you know, happens. Like the only way to do standup is to bomb a few times. So I'm like, okay, I gotta get it. I gotta get the courage up to fail. And then, and then I'll be good to go. Well, I have no doubt it will be a big success. So uh, the Wilder Project Season 2, a week from today, uh, we know about some of the guests. Are there any others you can tell us about? Uh, some of the guests, let's see. Um, our first guest, which I'm very excited about, is um, Kay Adams of NFL Network. She does Good Morning Football, oh, Yeah. Um, which should be great. We have Rachel Feinstein coming on. Um, there are a few others that are in the works that haven't confirmed, but I am just so, 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 so excited about. So next time we talk, Rich, I'll I'll give you some more details. All right. That sounds good. Uh, We'll be watching, listening, of course, to the most valuable podcast and following everything you do at SI Now Sports Illustrated. Uh, Always great. Charlotte Wilder, thanks so much for visiting with us. Oh, Rich, always a pleasure. I'm thrilled when you asked me. So uh, hopefully talk to you again soon. Charlotte Wilder from Sports Illustrated getting ready to roll out the brand new Wilder podcast season two this week. And a little bonus for you this time around. One of our favorite guests on the show is, uh, we think, one of the smartest writers in America, David Roth of Deadspin, who writes about everything from sports to whatever's going on inside 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. We covered, uh, well, a lot of ground as well in a recent conversation. This is David Roth of Deadspin on downtown the podcast what's going on in your world oh man it's uh i feel you on the whole um waving goodbye to february eagerly thing i uh this has been a very unpleasant month but we we've secured a new union contract at work everybody is breathing a lot more deeply than we had for uh, six months so like actually i'm enjoying a friday feeling today uh <laughs> Um, I don't know how long it'll last, hopefully for the duration of this call. Well, good. Well, congratulations uh, on all of that. It's not quite as good as a 13-year, $330 million deal, but it's not bad. <laughs> it was. I thought we'd be the biggest signing of the 24 hours, but apparently people are more interested in the, the guy that won the MVP award in 23 or whatever, which is fine. There's no accounting for days. Uh, of course, up here, everybody's thoughts immediately turn to Mookie Betts and and what will he get. But I I wonder about Mike Trout. The only thing I can think that they can do to top this is you got to give him something. I was thinking maybe the state of Rhode Island. It's small, but it's valuable. Yeah, and Scott, it's, there's some beaches. Uh, right. There's, um, you know, a lot of those large houses in Newport. And I think if you were to if you make the case to the you know I think it's probably eight or nine hundred people that live in Rhode Island, if you Sit down with them directly and say, "Would you be willing for you know just to Mookie Betts has your house now?" 
but he stays in Boston. I feel like a lot of people would be at least willing to listen. Oh, yeah. I, I think that, that that's not a deal breaker. There's no question about it. Let's get to the really important stuff. Not enough people know the story about Brandon Nimmo. I think you need to share that. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a developing story. Um, I'm glad that you uh, care about it. This is something that I did basically. I don't usually have to ask if I can do a blog post at work. But the story of Brandon Nimmo undercooking a piece of chicken, uh, proudly taking a photograph of it, sending it to his wife, and then staying up all night uh, barfing (laughs) struck me as not just a perfect spring training story, but an extremely New York Mets story. And, you know, I did a little stupid blog on it, and the story is continuing to develop. I did not think that this would be one that would have a second day. But earlier today, uh, Brandon Nimmo's wife tweeted out that, in fact, he had a virus and that he did succeed in cooking the chicken correctly. I have uh, a request for comment in with her because somehow this is what journalism looks like when I do it. (laughs) And I'm trying to, but I I would really like to figure out what actually happened here. He was apparently very um, unhappy. And the Mets for a while were were saying that they're going to teach him to cook, which I think would put him at significantly greater risk than if he had to cook chicken for himself every night. I would not let the Mets... Like, I wouldn't let them teach somebody how to parallel park. I sure wouldn't let them, you know, handle meat. We're talking with David Roth of Deadspin here on Downtown. Well, uh, this week we learned reason number uh, for me about 117 of why I could never live in Florida. Yeah, it's bad enough, the old folks uh, with their chin resting on the steering wheel. But now you got to watch out for billionaires in a hurry to get to the massage parlor. Good Lord, what is wrong with that place? Oh my goodness gracious! I uh, I wish I had an answer for you there. That one, I, I mean, I feel like there's still a great deal that we don't exactly know about that story, and yet the things that are known and that are not contested, except by you know Robert Kraft's lawyers, very vigorously, are pretty bad. Uh, the whole thing just really stinks, and <laughs> it's you know there's this tawdriness to it that. I think was you know it was clear as it was sort of evolving the night uh, Thursday night. I watched some of our more able reporters do it while you know whatever periodically offering to help copy edit because that's where I can help on a story like that. It just all felt it was gross enough that it was clearly a thing, and the NFL was clearly involved. And then as it started to take a more coherent shape, and it seemed like you know we just sort of kept hearing Robert Kraft's name linked to it, it just, it still sort of doesn't compute that this is a thing. Not because I have any illusions about what a, you know, respectful or civic-minded man Robert Kraft is. I think he probably is a little bit of both of those things. But just because it's so scuzzy. I think it's the power of Florida, man. Like, nobody can spend more than 48 hours there without making some miserable life-changing decision. (laughs) Well, and and as you guys said on the dead cast, it is, uh, it's uh, both... uh, the strangest thing that you would never think of with Bob Kraft and yet such a uniquely Bob Kraft kind of thing. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's, it's kind of, I mean, there are NFL owners that, you know, you don't want to admit, although I'm about to do it, to having a list of the NFL owners that seem most likely to get busted in a uh, massage parlor sting. And like Robert Kraft is in the top half of that list, but he's not in the top five. Uh, and it, there's, it still has this like, I don't. I mean, I, the night that it was happening, we were just watching all of these things, you know, go from red to green. And Drew and I were 
you know, both in there not helping at all, being like, no, it's somebody else. It's got to be someone else's mistake. Just because you just don't think of prominent people getting caught. Uh, not that they don't do bad things, but this all just seems so uh, down market and then also so <laughs> badly done that I, it was, I don't know, it still boggles the mind. And, of course, in that uh, colossal world of dysfunction that is the National Football League, as you pointed out uh, on the podcast, now you've got the scenario where Roger Goodell is forced to punish his boss. Which should be a really interesting scenario because, it, for one thing, I mean, at this point, everybody knows that the Roger Goodell is a, a man without any <laughs> real qualities. Uh, I mean, I'm sure he's like a nice guy, you know, if you dealt with him personally, maybe. Uh, but he has a really hard time successfully punishing athletes for open and shut things the first time around. I don't know that I would, uh, I can't think of anybody that would do a good job disciplining their boss for getting busted in a solicitation sort of scenario. But like Roger Goodell is going to do a really bad job of it. Like, I don't know what it'll be yet. I don't know if it's going to involve some sort of uh, craft has to wear a weird hat. <laughs> I just it's, it's really hard to imagine how he's going to screw it up, but I'm ex- extremely looking forward to seeing how that takes shape. Now, I have to ask, I think I know the answer. I'm sure I know the answer. In your, in your mental list of owners likely to be nabbed in this kind of operation, I mean, it's got to be Jerry Jones at number one, right? It's Jerry, and it's, it's always going to be Jerry. Although, as we, I think we both, uh, Drew and I, and Diana to a certain extent, she's a little bit more unforgiving where owners are concerned. Uh, Jerry is a, you know, a, a nasty man, uh, and I wouldn't want to, you know, if my nephew grew up to be like Jerry Jones, I would feel like I did something wrong. I guess it's, it's a way that I would express it. But he, you know, he inhabits his weird lifestyle so fully that, like, the we talked about this earlier, that one of the, the great revelations in that Mark Leibovich book about the NFL mm. big game is that Jerry basically travels in a giant party bus with <laughs> strip of poles and just a, a giant thermos full of Johnny Walker blue. And that is obviously, you know, I, I would say that that's conduct unbecoming uh, to a certain extent, but he's not driving the bus, you know, that, right, like, right. So you take your, like, so that, does that make him more responsible than Jim Irsay? Like maybe kind of, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, to know where that all ends. Right. He's got the bag of pills somewhere on the pleasure van, but he's not behind right. the wheel. Yes, yeah, which is, you know, and to a certain extent, I'd say knock yourself out. I, I think with Jerry, there's, there's some limits, and I can't think of who would ever impose them on him. But. <laughs> we had Mark Leibovich on the show, and I love the story he told about going on there, going on the van, the bus, whatever it is, and not really remembering how he got out. Yeah, it's great. It's one of my favorite chat. I mean, I enjoyed the book greatly, but it's one of my favorite bits in it, because not just because it's a great story, but, you know, as somebody who's also had to write similar things like i was like this is that is as well as you can write like i went on this guy's bus and blacked out and fell asleep for five hours like it's really hard to report that effectively you know like in such a way that doesn't make you look extremely unprofessional but then when you got through you know to the end of the chapter you're just like all right yeah you really nailed the jerry jones experience there (laughs) by passing out for five hours but he did do it all right, I don't want to keep people from listening to the Deadcast because, as always, it's awesome. But I do need to ask about your thesis here, uh, that fajitas are a gateway drug. Well, I think in a good way. I yes. think that, this is, you know, the term gateway drug, often because it is applied to, uh, you know, actual drugs, 
has kind of a negative connotation. And maybe I could have rethought my phrasing there. No, no. But we had a a reader write in um, asking if we thought that fajitas were, you know, were they, are they fraudulent? I'm trying to use radio appropriate language as opposed Mm. to podcast language. And I (laughs) I have no problem with fajitas. Some of my happiest moments in restaurants have been sitting there while someone carried fajitas past their table and you get the waft and the, you know, the audio element of it. It's all really nice. I just think that there's an, an infinite number of more interesting Mexican or Tex-Mex foods to fajitas. And yet, like, that gets you started on the idea of, like, flour tortillas, putting stuff together yourself. And then the next thing you know, you've, you've moved on to tacos. You're comfortable with the concept. And then maybe you don't need to go back to fajitas anymore. <laughs> Uh, all right, I, I should. It works better if I have a dry erase board. <laughs> no, I, yeah, definitely. It's a complicated point. I would love to see that. All right, uh, <laughs> let's let's talk about the week in Trump. It's been an interesting one. Uh, of course, the hearings of the Oversight Committee, uh, the failed deal uh, in North Korea, uh, Jared's clearance that apparently nobody approved, but the president, and on and on. But nothing to me was more entertaining and bizarre in Trump world this week than the Republicans on that oversight committee and when even the guys on the outside trying to get in like Matt Gates and some of these others, it's like, it's like the worst Goodfellas remake ever. It's incredible. I mean, I think that this is, it will be lucky if this is the worst effect of the, the Trump presidency, but there's this way in which like, I've been thinking about this. I haven't written about it. And I, forgive me if this comes out incoherent where I think that there's this like ambient Trumpiness that, has sort of gripped that party, not just in terms of like, you know, overt racism and like sort of like stupid pandering, you know, anti-immigrant stuff, which is obviously all very bad. But these people were all, uh, you know, and not to say that these are towering interlocks, you know, Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows, these guys that if they could change a tire in under three hours, I would I happily give you a dollar. But the, but the way that they were arguing, it felt like this kind of warmed over attempt to ventriloquize Trump, you know, to like sort of do it how he would do it. But if you're if you're not him, you just sound desperate. I mean, he is desperate, too, and he does sound desperate. But all of this stuff about, you know, sort of aimless aggression and not really having any idea where your sentence is going to end when you begin it, all that stuff that somehow works or like works in quotes for Trump. These guys just came off like people that had watched too much television and also maybe had too much coffee, but it didn't, none of it landed. And you can't let Michael Cohen run circles around. Like he's a doofus. And yet, like he just roasted these guys. It was really remarkable to see. So you're saying liar, liar, pants on fire isn't a great way to start a cross examination of a witness. I mean, you know, I all due respect to Paul Gozar. Uh, he's been through a lot. As, as you recall, he won his uh, 2018 campaign despite, like, everyone in his family making an ad for his opponent. That was, you know, that's, that's real. That's, like, that's right. one of my favorite things that happened. And he, like, the fact that he had a visual aid that had the words liar, liar, pants on fire written on it, the fact that he referred to it as an adage, which is really something. It was really, I mean, to me, that is my favorite moment of the entire thing. And yeah, the fact that like Paul Gozar never laid a glove on him, despite, you know, he made somebody in his office go to Kinko's and get those words printed on Oak Tech. <laughs> but he doesn't even make my, my top three because uh, I, where to begin? I mean, Mark Meadows, 
He's got a black friend, so he can't be a racist. Oh, uh, Jim Jordan, yeah. who, uh, look, if you want people to forget the wrestling scandal, maybe stop dressing like a wrestling coach. And then my favorite, this guy from Louisiana, the you know the corrupt cop, Clay Higgins, who sounds like oh, a he's senator. Incredible. He's like Beauregard Turdbottom. And my good sir, I, I defend <laughs> the honor of the South. My good sir. He's incredible. He actually, I had forgotten that he was a part of uh, the proceedings. He is one of the most outlandish dudes. And obviously everybody in Louisiana, like more or less to the extent they vote for things, is just like they're trying to pick the funniest guy. And I respect that it's a coherent <laughs> approach. Uh, you know, they have the politics to match, but he's like one of those dudes that you see on YouTube that like will, he's just like ranting into a dash cam in his car, like parked in like a, like whatever, outside of Shaw's being like, and another thing about getting divorced, like, and that is in Congress. <laughs> yeah, but it's not limited to them. Remarkable. Have you have you seen the uh, the ads and the posters for the guy that uh, uh, Harris down in North Carolina has endorsed to take his place on the oh, ballot incredible. in the special election, dressed up like Boss Hog? You couldn't make this it's, stuff up. It's unreal. I and that guy. I mean, honestly, it's North Carolina. Uh, it's that district. Like, I can't imagine that somebody like that will be in Congress. And yet there's like probably maybe five guys that dress like that all the time that are in Congress. There's a lot of people there. I can't keep track of all of them. And there is this bizarre race to the bottom. That guy's name is also incredible because it's like Stony Snuggins or something. Like, it's just like a name that you would make up if you saw a picture of that man who's wearing, in the, the photo we're talking about, all white suit, white vest, white hat holding a shotgun in one hand and a cigarillo in the other. Like, this is real. That man wants to be in Congress. And yet, like, his name is actually, it, it's not some, you know, procedurally generated, uh, you know, conservative politician name thing. It is, it's real, the whole thing. And, and I think they, they, be alive. they only got him because the guy who played Jackie Gleason's son in Cannonball Run is either dead or unavailable. It'll be really sad when he loses to Jerry Reed in the, in the uh, you know, election, but you never know. These things change. Uh, David Roth of Deadspin, always a treat, my friend. Thank you so much. Congratulations on your uh, your union success, your new contract, and uh, better days ahead as we move into the month of March. We will talk to you again very soon, I hope. Thanks very much, man. I appreciate you having me always. Have a good one. That's David Roth from Deadspin. Thanks to David, Charlotte Wilder, and the great Dion Warwick for joining us this week on the podcast. And thanks to you for giving it a listen as well. We remind you, we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.